News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the first day of a new administration in the United States, and already that Canada-U.S. relationship is being tested. The cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline has led to calls for trade sanctions from some politicians on this side of the border. But we also know that the first phone call to a foreign leader tomorrow will be from President Biden to Prime Minister Trudeau. So what can we expect from our largest trading partner in the next four years? Well, Matthew Lebo is a professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at Western University, and he talks. He joins us now to talk more about that. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning. I think a lot of people are looking at this like, oh, well, things can get back to normal now between Canada and the U.S., but really, what is normal between Canada and the U.S.? Well, I think this was this was inevitable to come from President Biden. He had promised this uh, during his campaign to to end the pipeline, and uh, he wants to you know send all those all the signals to the uh, environmentalists within his party. So you know, doing this on his first day was sort of just ripping that bandaid off, and and I, I imagine the phone call uh, with the Prime Minister will be you know try to smooth things over and. And, you know, the U.S. Is, is going to do what's in the U.S., uh, what's in their own best interest. But uh, at, at least there will be some stability there. Right, though. But the impact on Canada will still be significant, won't it? Because President Biden is also a fan of Buy America programs. Sure, sure. And, and I think that uh, there'll be a lot of that in, in the announcements today about uh, COVID. Um, but, uh, you know, the political instability over the last couple of years and uh, uh, Trump's uh, ability to sort of make, make trade relationships rocky immediately based on tiny whims was, was destabilizing. And, uh, the, you know, the pipeline news is going to hurt a lot of Canadians. But um, to have some stability, perhaps better cooperation, uh, better predictability. You know, in the long term, in most areas, it should be a healthy thing for Canada. Right. But shouldn't we also have kind of seen this coming? Because it's not like they made any secret about this, that if they won the election, this is what they were going to do. Yeah, he he's promised this. And uh, the people that he had sort of appointed over the last uh, couple of months that he'd chosen for his cabinet and other key positions uh, also sort of emphasized that he wasn't going to back away from that promise. What are some of the other areas, Matthew, do you think that Canada and the U.S. are going to be running into discussions on in the next little while? Well, um, you know, COVID will be uh, emphasized uh, today. I think that's that's pretty much most of the, the president's agenda. And uh you know, Canada and the U.S. have really gone their separate ways, uh, trying to control the pandemic separately. And uh, so maybe there's there's promise of better cooperation there as the U.S. ramps up production of PPE and vaccines, um, gets back into the World Health Organization. Perhaps there's there's much better basis there for cooperation. Maybe uh, Canada can can get some uh, vaccines stuck stuck into the country somehow um, and ramp up the the supply. Uh, here, so I'm I'm kind of hopeful for that. Right, so you're hopeful, but I guess it remains to be seen, right? Can't should Canada assume anything? Assume a better relationship at this point? I think Canada can assume just that there will be predictability and and rationality. That doesn't necessarily mean it's good for Canada, 
but it's a it's a lot easier to navigate and plan. Um, there's there's always been difficulties whether you know the two the president and the prime minister were were from the same side of the uh, political spectrum doesn't matter there, there's always going to be the two looking out for their own country's interests but you know I, I think political stability is we shouldn't take that for granted the last few years have shown last few weeks have shown not to take that for granted so uh, I, I just still see yesterday as a positive step. Right. So at least you have people who are going to talk to each other in a civil tone and try to work things out. Right. And that's even even coming to uh, disagreements civilly. I see some value in that. Okay. Can you see some um, areas up ahead that Canada and the U.S. are going to have to deal with? I mean, they've got this, the new NAFTA agreement, but are there kind of some some things that you might think we have to pay attention to? Um. Well, I think the U.S. is going to take a, you know, try to retake a stronger role um, in NATO, in the Paris uh, Paris Accords, in all sorts of international relationships. And, uh, you know, Canada and a lot of other U.S. allies have sort of taken up the slack for the, the U.S. pulling out of these things. And, you know, that's kind of like what happened when, when President Obama took over in 2009, that the, the U.S. was trying to reassert itself internationally. And, you know, that's, that, I'm sure that will be welcomed by lots of countries, including Canada. But I think they'll be a lot more wary this time, you know, that there has to be a backup plan because the U.S. is swinging so wildly from one administration to the next, and you don't know what's coming in 2024. And so Canada has to be a lot more, a lot more careful about trusting the U.S. to stay the course, mm-hmm. uh, in, you know, in the next four or five years. So true. Matthew, thank you so much for your time on this. You're welcome. It's Matthew Lebo, professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at Western University, talking about that relationship between Canada and the United States. Poll after poll had shown that here in Canada, even though we have no say at all, but people here overwhelmingly preferred a the idea of a Biden administration to a Trump administration. So now you've got we've got that you've got the Biden administration. But that doesn't mean things are going to go completely smoothly. We know that the Keystone XL pipeline permit has already been revoked. That was last night on the president's desk. Done. And the first phone call that uh, the new president is going to make to a foreign leader, which comes tomorrow, is going to be to Prime Minister Trudeau, where undoubtedly this will be discussed. So there's more to come on that. This is Mornings with Simi. The airline industry. It's been about two years since the second Boeing 737 MAX 8 crashed. And now the aircraft are actually coming back into operation in Canada. In fact, WestJet is set to use that plane on a flight from Calgary to Vancouver this morning. Global News political reporter Amanda Connolly joins us now with more on this. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, what kind of process has the MAX 8 and Boeing gone through to make this happen? Yeah, of course. It's been a very extensive process. As your listeners will recall, this plane has been grounded now for just about uh, just shy of two years. And Transport Canada saying earlier this week that they've spent 15,000 hours roughly evaluating, reviewing, studying the aircraft itself and recommending a number of changes to the plane that they say are making it safer, that have now given them the confidence to clear the plane to fly again. So, of course, we are seeing this first commercial flight in Canada here this morning with WestJet. They are the first carrier to bring the plane back into service here, of course, in the U.S. It's already been flying for a number of months. It was authorized back in November. The first plane, um, the first flights came in December. And so 
we're seeing this kind of gradual introduction here back into service of these planes in a number of countries and at the same time hearing a lot of concerns from consumers about the planes. Yeah, what kind of concerns? What are you hearing? So we've seen some internal data that WestJet uh, did share with us that they had done around uh, what what are people's perceptions of the planes here. And of course, again, a lot of uh, concerns about that. And those are really being heightened by the pandemic. There's a lot of concerns with the pandemic around the safety of flying, mm-hmm. being in confined spaces, and just this general kind of climate of wariness around airplanes themselves. And as part of that, uh, the, the data is suggesting that they're seeing some uh, some perhaps extra extra caution on the part of people who are asking more questions about the safety of these planes. And again, um, in response to that, we are seeing the airlines modifying some of their cancellation policies for tickets for folks who have bought tickets over the coming months. Air Canada, WestJet, both saying that if you have bought a ticket and you realize it's on the max and you don't want to fly on that, you will be able to change that ticket. They're not going to force anyone onto the plane who doesn't want to be on there, which, of course, as many people who've booked flights for Canadian Airlines knows, is not always an easy process to go through. So uh, certainly addressing some of those concerns and really preemptively, it seems, uh, trying to get out ahead of that. That is so interesting. All right, Amanda, thank you. Thank you. Amanda Connolly, Global News political reporter, talking about the fact that the Boeing 737 MAX 8 back in service today for WestJet. In fact, they are going to be using it on a flight from Calgary to Vancouver this morning. Uh, But that's an interesting policy that if you don't want to fly on it, you don't have to. You will be allowed to change your ticket if you realize that you are ticketed to fly on that particular plane. Understandable, right? I think that would make a lot of people nervous right now. There's enough to be nervous about when it comes to getting on an airplane these days already with COVID-19. This might also make people think twice about changing changing. So we'll find out how that's going. Would you do that? Like if you found out you were flying somewhere and it was on a Boeing 737, would you want to make that change? This is Mornings with Simi. So we've been talking, of course, a lot about the new Biden administration. And most importantly, how is that going to impact us here in Canada? Obviously, Keystone XL, pipelines, that discussion, very high up on the list. Uh, The two leaders are expected to have a phone call tomorrow. In fact, Prime Minister Trudeau will be the first foreign leader that President Biden speaks to. And also on, I think, that call is going to be a discussion of climate policy, because this relationship with the U.S. will have a substantial impact on our climate policy here in Canada. So what does it mean for us to have an ally like the United States now be back on board for something like, you know, the Paris Climate Agreement and more? Well, let's talk about that. Joining us is Dr. Simon Donner, climate scientist and the UBC professor of geography. Dr. Donner, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on this morning. Well, what do you think changes for us and our climate policy with what we now see in the Biden administration? I mean, this is really good news for all of the initiatives that have been happening under the Trudeau government, uh, previous administration and the current one, um, to tackle climate change, because they've been trying to carefully weave (laughs) their policies in a way that will still, uh, that wouldn't uh, bang up against all the sort of damage that Trump was, that, that the Trump administration was doing. And so now all of the things that really need to be partnered between the two countries, that can actually happen. And, and uh, I'm not just talking about, you know, debates over pipeline. The pipelines are one thing. There's all these other initiatives that are really important. Uh, that now it might be a little bit cleaner for them to go ahead. In what ways do you think this is going to manifest itself in the next little while? Like how quickly will this have an impact on us? Well, just to give you, you know, to, to be clear, I mean, you can only do so things so fast in government. But just to give a sense of what, what the Biden administration has been doing, 
Yesterday, they've already released. I mean, one of the first things they did was rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, and that obviously is in the news a lot. Another thing that might not have been in the news as much is that the Biden administration already signed an executive order that's going to begin the process of undoing all these regulatory changes that the Trump administration put into place. These are the sort of regulatory changes that maybe don't make the headlines as much, but are very impactful. And so over the, you know, during the Trump administration, they weakened rules that were put in place uh, to reduce methane emissions. That was something that was agreed upon with the Canadian government. And they also changed the plans for fuel economy standards for cars that had been put under an Obama and that the Canadian government had also agreed to. And so they're already signaling in day one, hey, we want to reverse this stuff. We want to go back to policies that are going to be more effective right. for the climate. And that just lines up with what Canada has planned. A lot of that, too, I mean, had continued on, right? Like you mentioned the emission standards there. Some states and even car makers had said they weren't going to abide by that. Well, and, you know, not to rehash the past, but that is really what was so uh, dumbfounding about what the Trump administration was doing. Uh, they were trying to put in, the, you know, put, put policies into place that even the, the the sectors they were impacting weren't interested in. And one of the biggest pieces of evidence of that is for all of Trump's talk of being a champion of coal, you had a bigger decline in uh, coal usage, you know, for power under mm-hmm. Trump than they even did under Obama. Which because I guess the industry is just going another way. Well, that's what I was wondering then, Doctor. How much of this is government policy? How much of this is getting to the point where it's just corporate plan now? Like that's just the way the the, the industry is going. You know, it's a, it's a really great question to me. I mean, it's really quite the, all of these things are chicken and the egg, where it's hard to say exactly where it starts. But right. the main thing I would say is that we need government policy. We need both at the you know the municipal level here in Vancouver. provincially, federally, and also international frameworks like Paris, because you need to set the incentive structure. And the problem we've had for so long uh, with climate change is the incentives have uh, structured the way government works, the way things are funded, the way policies are, have encouraged fossil fuel burning instead of, um, you know, shifting to renewable forms of energy, shifting to electric vehicles. And so what the government can do is change the incentives, but then it becomes up to businesses, it becomes up to individuals to sort of actually make the decisions. But it's hard for companies and for people to make that choice if the incentive structure is set the wrong way. And right now, I think the good news with having the Biden administration in place is between the Biden administration and the current Canadian government, uh, the incentives could be set well. Right. I guess that's that's the point, though. It reaches a point where companies are going to do it on their own anyway, right? So is this just kind of a like an example then for companies to say, well, okay, now we are doing it for sure with the help and support of the government? Yeah, and there's so, there's so many things that are going to be, come into place. I mean, and some of it is is like I said, it's setting these regulatory standards, which is the way the U.S. is going to approach um, uh, a lot of dealing with climate change. It's also going to be, you know, a specific government initiative. So one of the things the U.S. government can do and that the Biden administration will do is push all U.S. government purchasing. So things for the government itself towards clean energy and, you know, electric vehicles or, right. or low carbon vehicles. And if you think of this, the scale of the U.S. government operations, federal operations, that's, that's a significant impact on the market. And so, you know, the Canadian government's have done these sort of things as well. I think it's more impactful if the U.S. does it. Uh, and so, you know, it's both symbolic, but actually operational as well. Isn't it fascinating, though, Dr. Donner, to see just in the last 24 hours, countries around the world are they're looking once again to the United States. So clearly that people, other countries, leaders were missing that leadership role that the U.S. often provides. 
For sure. And part of it, I think, was that they were uncomfortable with who the leaders might have been otherwise. And so the thing to understand is that, you know, while under the Trump administration, even when they said we were pulling out of the Paris Agreement and eventually did, uh, it's not, the negotiations went on. Other countries kept working. But, you know, where you really, uh, you know, saw the impact was now leadership was Europe. Leadership was coming from China. And not everyone's comfortable with that. And a lot of a lot of the countries in between that you don't hear about on these issues, mm-hmm. you know, we're thinking about like Malaysia, Indonesia, their incentives to take action on this when you're developing, you know, a rapidly industrializing country. The incentives aren't as good if you see the U.S. Uh, just right. putting out, you know, just crazy rhetoric on the issue. And so the, the, I, one of the smartest things I think that Biden did was reach to the past and ask John Kerry to be his international sort of climate czar. Uh, this might look like, oh no, yet another um, aging, <laughs> aging politician working on the, uh, with the administration. But this was, he was a secretary of state. All these other countries know him. And they did that on purpose. They were saying, here's someone you know, here's someone you can trust. This is the person. It helped negotiate the Paris Agreement. So it was a really symbolic, yeah. like not just getting his expertise, but it was telling countries, hey, you can trust us again. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating times we're in right now. Dr. Donner, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. Dr. Simon Donner is a climate scientist and UBC professor of geography talking about the impact and the change of climate policy and focus in the United States and how that's going to impact us, not just in Canada, but all over the world. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the record number of overdose calls that emergency health services is seeing right now. And we are not talking about just in the city of Vancouver. A mix of drugs that make the life-saving naloxone less effective is actually spreading in northern BC. And that means there is now a health alert for that region. Joining us is Jordan Harris, Executive Director of the Pounds Project. This is a support group for residents of northern BC who use drugs. Jordan, thank you for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. These are some scary stats that we heard about yesterday. Are you seeing this in the northern part of the province? Absolutely. It's something that we've been seeing for quite a while. This is a reissue um, of this alert from Northern Health, um, and we originally saw it a number of months ago. And what do you think the factors are? Like, what has happened? First of all, it's honestly, it's a natural progression of prohibition of any substance. It's very similar to what North America saw with the prohibition of alcohol so long ago. When you prohibit a substance, it inherently becomes more dangerous more unpredictable. The supply will become more and more toxic. So this is just an evolution of, you know, the drug policies that Canada has in place right now. And COVID-19 also played, it impacted substance users and, um, you know, the drug supply as much as it affected anybody else. And so availability of substances and what was required to create them at the illicit level became harder for people to find. I guess my other question would be, too, is that with all this discussion, like that is the public health emergency we have had longer, much longer than we had COVID-19. And so we've been talking about it for a few years now. Did the messaging not get through or has too much of the focus been on the overdose crisis, say, in Metro Vancouver? (laughs) That's that's kind of a tough one. It does sometimes feel up here like we have been forgotten about. Um, Our overdose numbers are like lower than um, anything seen down south in Vancouver, obviously, but on a per capita rate, um, northern BC has one of the highest rates in BC um, of overdoses. And it's, yeah, it's definitely been 
not prioritized the way that it should be. Right. And now you've got this even more potent mix of drugs out there that is making even naloxone less effective. Are, are you, is that message getting through to drug users as well that you talk to? Do, is there any understanding of how dangerous that drug supply is right now? Absolutely. People are well aware of the risks and the dangers. And it's it's also a, like the, the substance that they're trying to obtain, like an opiate of some kind, is adulterated. And, you know, people, these are not individuals who are, in most cases, willingly seeking out a benzo to use. Um, and so that that's not the effect that they're going for. Um, it's not what people signed up for. And people you know, wish that they could access uh, a, a drug or a medication or something um, that actually works for them. But because people are forced to rely on an illicit supply, um, it's a take what you right. can get kind of game. So it would be different, though, if they were down here, right? Because they might have those options. So what what can be done here? What would you like to see the government do to help? The first thing that I think any community, all communities need um, is adequate drug checking technology. Um, so there's lots of sites um, down in Vancouver where you can use something called an FTIR machine, um, which analyzes all the different compounds in a substance. Um, and that allows people who use substances to make a truly educated and informed decision about the substances that they're using. Um, that's not available anywhere in northern BC right now. Um, and so the the checking options that are available are definitely insufficient. So people aren't even able to identify before they use the substance what exactly it is. Um, and then the second and like hugest thing uh, is that the the obvious answer to this is decriminalization and regulation of substances. Right. Well, Jordan, thank you very much for that. I know that's a continuing discussion, so I'm sure we'll have you back on to talk more about it. But thank you for your time today. Yeah, thanks so much. That's Jordan Harris, Executive Director of the Pounds Project. That's a support group for residents of northern BC who use drugs. Lots of concerns about a poison drug supply up there with a big increase in the number of overdose calls in that part of the province. Not just here in Metro Vancouver, but Interior Health, Northern Health also seeing these problems in a big way. This is Mornings with Simi. How do you feel about the idea of people traveling here from other provinces? It has been a contentious issue the last couple of weeks, obviously also because Premier John Horgan said that he was seeking a legal opinion to see how much of that you know traffic could potentially be blocked. So yeah, the provincial government has been very public about considering a ban on interprovincial travel, but turns out the window for that to be really effective in terms of the impact on our COVID-19 cases may actually be closing. So we wanted to get more information about that. Joining us is Dr. Kelly Lee, the Canada Research Chair in Global Health Governance at Simon Fraser University. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Now, we know the the idea behind an interprovincial travel ban, but is the window closing for it? Like, can it still be effective if we do it a couple of weeks from now? Well, the challenge is that we have these new variants of concern that are uh, circulating globally. We also know that they've already arrived in Canada. And uh, yesterday, uh, Dr. Theresa Tam was suggesting possibly that those variants may be already spreading within the community in parts of Canada. We, 
we imagine they're not here in BC spreading communally, but um, it may be the case that they're they're very much on the horizon. So we do have this window of opportunity, as you described, to prevent importation or to have these new variants um, spreading more um you know, more widely within the community here in BC. So that's why there's this time pressure uh, to really restrict non-essential travel into the province. And would it work though? Like, is that even a a possible thing? It's worked elsewhere. So if we think about the Maritimes uh, here in Canada, we have um, provinces that have tightly restricted who can go into those provinces. And also when they do go in, that they're, they're quarantined and then tested, and so on. So they've had very low um, numbers of cases. And then, you know, when you do that, you create this kind of restricted area where within that restricted area, you know how you have a low uh, level of cases, and then people can resume their lives a bit more because they know that they're not, the, the virus is not circulating as much. We see this in Australia. We see this in New Zealand, um, Taiwan. You know, I could go on. There yeah. are countries around the world who are doing this. So we have decided not to do this. We've decided to allow the, a certain level of the virus to circulate and allow people to come in and out of the province. Right. I just don't know how you could do it, though, because those places that you describe, it's a lot easier to close their borders uh, than it is here in B.C. That's a huge border with Alberta. Yes. And, I, and it's not just Alberta. I mean, people are flying into the right. province, so it's not just by land. Um, and I agree. So our research project is called Pandemics and Borders Project. And we've, you know, it's a really complicated subject because, of course, geography matters. And so it's much easier for a country that's an island or even a series of islands to stop people coming in and out because um, it would usually be air travel. Um, here we have land borders, we have air travel, we even have people coming in by sea. So it's an issue of, um, you know, logistics for sure. So there, there is that. But at the moment, we're saying people should be, you know, please, please don't travel on holiday. Um, it's kind of an advisory. There's, there's not strict requirements at the moment. So I think if, if the government can adopt stronger language and maybe even legal restrictions, that would be, a, a, you know, a disincentive for people to come anyway. We don't need to post guards along right. the Alberta-BC border, but also make it a disincentive, maybe requiring people to quarantine for 14 days in designated hotels, to um, require them to undergo testing at their expense. Those are disincentives, and that will also reduce travel. That's really interesting, then. So what you're saying is make it unpalatable for people. If if you just tell yeah. them, listen, you're going, if you come here, this is what you have to do, they may decide it's not worth going. That's exactly it. And a lot of jurisdictions have done that. And that has, you know, led to a drop off of travel because it's not worth, you know, a two week holiday to have to then, uh, you know, shelter for two weeks at your expense at a hotel and then do all this testing. It's just not worth it in the end. So that's a good way of doing it to get, Hmm. you know, if it's legally not possible, then these disincentives are, are effective. Do you think perhaps what governments have been also trying to do is play it at both ends here, right? Hoping that enough vaccine will show up that they don't have to do take these kinds of measures? That's the approach that's been taken. It's that kind of balance between keeping people's um, livelihoods going and, you know, uh, completely understand that and balancing and pulling these levers in society to try and um, manage it that way. The problem with these new variants, because they're so transmissible, so they're something like over 50% more infectious than um, the, the, the strains that we've been dealing with. It's going to tip that careful balance between new infections and healthcare capacity. 
So in BC, we've done very well. We've flattened the curve. We, you know, we've gone close, but we haven't exceeded our healthcare capacity. But if these new variants get hold in the community, that is completely a different story. So we're seeing this being played out in England at the mm-hmm. moment, in California. You know, we know these new variants are are circulating, and they just completely um, overwhelm the healthcare system. Right. So even though we heard the premier say that, oh, he's looking at the legal opinions, he could have just said, or the government could have just said, you know, please don't come here. We would like you to quarantine if you did. Yeah, that's one, certainly one step for sure. And, you know, we're in a public health emergency. So the question is, are we, um, you know, is it a legitimate argument to say we can make stronger um, restrictions because we're in an emergency situation? And that's the big legal argument that they're having at the moment. And do you think that, well, what are the cons to that, though? Why do you think that isn't happening? It, it's largely economic. So clearly there's going to be impacts on, on tourism, on transport, hospitality industries. And everyone gets that. You know, we, nobody wants people to lose their livelihoods, their jobs, and so on. And so it, the situation is, you know, can we kind of limit that, but also limit the number of cases coming in? And what the evidence seems to show is you can't have both. You have to deal with the public health um, emergency first and, and, then, and then the other mm-hmm. um, uh, considerations. Because if we don't and these new variants get into the community, what we'll have to do is have very tight lockdowns and even curfews, as we've seen in other t- uh, places. Right. And then there's very little non-essential travel then. So, so we'll kind of do the hard stuff first. And then maybe we can create a restricted area in D.C., like they have in the Maritimes or in Australia. And then people can open up more within that restricted area rather than keeping us open. So how much time do you think we have, Dr. Lee, then? If they're going to make this decision, how quickly do they have to do it before those other variants might start spreading? Yeah, I'm, I'm really worried. I've been telling people, you know, within this week or next week, we need to make a, de- a firm decision. The problem is we know the, vir- the new variants are here. Um, we've only, you know, detected a few cases, but we, there may be, and there's probably likely to be more cases out there that we haven't found. We're not right. testing as much as we should. We're not sequencing genomes as much as we should or sharing that data. So we know it's here already. So, you know, hopefully we're not too late, but we definitely need to reduce the number of outside travelers coming in and those who have to come in for essential reasons they need to be quarantined or if not they cannot be say truck drivers coming in and out over the over the um, borders and so on probably need to be vaccinated Hmm. all right dr lee thank you so much for your time thanks simi this is mornings with simi Now, we're expecting a big press conference tomorrow morning with more information about how the province is going to be rolling out the mass immunization of British Columbians. It's a lot of people who are going to be on that list who want to get the shot. But in what order? When can you expect it? Even with all these delays in deliveries, you know, where are you on the schedule? So no surprise then, amidst all of that uncertainty and the questions, that BC residents aren't really very happy with how the vaccine rollout has been going so far. Uh, Insights West has done some polling on this and Steve Mossop, the president, joins us now to talk about that. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Simi. Now this, what I found interesting about your poll this morning is it's quite different from the other relatively high marks that the provincial government has been getting in the pandemic. You're right about that. You know, for the last 10 months, we've seen really numbers that are quite astronomical when it comes to support of the provincial government's plans, whether it's financial assistance or the 
restrictions. They've been running very positively. And here we have it, you know, probably the crux of the most important part of the pandemic where we see that uh, people are divided about the rollout plans. Yeah, tell us about some of those numbers. How are people feeling? Well, it's about, it's about divided 50-50 for the overall rollout plan. So, you know, we've got 51% who are rating it fair to poor to very poor. And only a minority, 35%, rate the current plan as good or excellent. And the rest are really undecided. So just on the overall plan, there's a bit of discontent. The execution of the plan is even worse so far. We've got 57% who are rating on the, the poor fare, very poor side, and only 30% rating it positively. So right out of the gate, and, and yes, there are more details to come, but the current plan as it stands is not being received uh, very well. I guess because I think people feel there's like not enough information on what exactly the current plan is. It is that, but the, I think the bigger issue is the, the exceptions uh, uh, to the list. And so when we ask people, you know, here's a group of people that are not on the current distribution list, at least as it stands right now, and what do you feel about that? We've got some pretty major opposition. So, we, you know, we go through the list, and on, on the first of the list, it's those with underlying medical conditions that are at greater risk for severe illness. We've got 70% of people saying that they should have been on the initial list, yeah. uh, the initial distribution list. And they're nowhere to be seen, even uh, on the top uh, eight or nine uh, of the current rollout plan. So they're just going to have to wait uh, with their age group, I guess. I know I've gotten a lot of emails about that too. It sounds like from your survey also, Steve, that people weren't really happy with the order of where other groups were also coming in. Exactly. So at the top of the list where people are really scratching their heads is the prioritization of healthcare workers providing care for COVID. And yes, they're high on the list. They're number three. But we've got 65% of the population that are saying, no, they should have been higher up. They should have been number one or number two. Yeah, I know. I get a lot of emails on that topic as well. Uh, and what about like RCMP? What about police? What about firefighters? Like uh, teachers? Where did they come on the list? Well, they, again, you've got about half the population saying that they should have been on the initial list. And again, that initial list goes right down to about 10 different groups. And the RCMP teachers, firefighters, and other healthcare providers are not on the list. And we've got half of British Columbia residents that are scratching their heads saying why they should be on the list. And yes, you know, we can't accommodate everybody, but people feel pretty strongly of those categories. So it's RCMP, teachers, firefighters, uh, other healthcare workers, and other essential service workers. Does this also indicate to you, though, how people are feeling about the idea of getting vaccinated? It sounds like a lot of people want it. Yes. And, you know, we've done lots of polls on vaccination in the past, and there's always been a steady kind of 30% who are I wouldn't say fully anti-vaxxers. That group's about 10% of the population, but another 20% who are kind of on the fence. And when it comes to the vaccine now, it seems like um, that opposition is really dissipating. We've got the the vast majority, so 80% will definitely or probably get the vaccine when it's available to them. And really, there's only very few who are truly opposed, about 7% who say, well, definitely not get the vaccine no matter when it's available and another 5% who say they probably will not or wait and see. So 7% is a fairly small number. Right. Well, Steve, so what do you think this says then to the provincial government? I think it says, you know, maybe more public consultation. It's a pretty controversial list. You know, we've got, uh, at the, we've got staff and inmates at provincial correctional facilities on the list, and we've got 30% of the public saying, no, they shouldn't be there. And so, uh, you know, we've got, we've got a lot of dissension uh, with the prioritization of the list. Maybe not so much of who's on the list overall, but just the, uh, 
the actual uh, rank order of who's going first. So I also have a feeling then after that press conference tomorrow where we get more information about this, you're going to be furiously polling all over again. I think so. Right. <laughs> I think so too. Steve, thank you. Thanks very much. That's Steve Mossop, the president at Insights West. They have a new poll out just this morning. It came out asking people how they feel about the rollout of the vaccination plan to date here in BC. And I think a lot of people's reaction to that would be, well, what rollout and what vaccination plan? We are supposed to get more information on this, more details about exactly where you are in line. Uh, That is supposed to come tomorrow morning. As a result of that, what normally would be an in-person briefing this afternoon at three o'clock with Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix will not be happening as an in-person briefing. They'll just release a statement with the uh, numbers and information. And instead, I guess we'll be hearing from them and there'll be the big presentation coming up tomorrow morning. But this survey is really interesting. I mean, 80% of people said they will get the vaccine as soon as it's possible. And 69% said they think that people with pre-existing conditions should be on the list of people who get a higher priority for the vaccine. Uh, Right now, it's felt like they're not even on the list. But I get a lot of emails from people who have pre-existing conditions saying, how come I'm not on the list? Where do I fall? Hopefully, we'll get some answers to all of that tomorrow. Keep it tuned in right here. We will have all of that information for you.